Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McClanahan, and today my guests and I will be discussing the recently published review of children's social care services in Northern Ireland. We've made a number of episodes in the past about the independent review of children's social care in England, and today we're crossing to the other side of the Irish Sea and looking at what has been proposed to reform services in Northern Ireland. With me for today's discussion are the lead independent reviewer, Professor Ray Jones, Josephine Doyle, a student social worker and care experienced young person who has been closely involved in the review process via the organisation Voice of Young People in Care, which I'm sure we will refer to throughout as VoIPIC. And finally, Carolyn Ewart, National Director of the British Association of Social Workers Northern Ireland. Ray, Josephine, Carolyn, welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. How are you guys all doing? Josephine, you first. How are you? Yeah, not too bad for a Friday morning. Yes, Friday morning. This is Friday the 23rd of June. This episode is going to be going out on Thursday the 29th of June, just as a sort of timestamp. Ray, how are you doing? Big day for you on Wednesday. Yeah, and uh, really enjoyed it. Saw lots of people become friends in Northern Ireland and uh, as far as I know, we're on the road. Good. Have you kind of come down? It was a big event, 400 people, Stormont Hotel in Belfast. And people tell me it's one of the biggest events for the Department of Health that's been held and there's a queue outside the um, venue trying to get in. I was and in the queue. I was in the queue for a while, yeah, and you all about it. Well, apologies for that, because in the, end, we did, in the end we decided to abandon registration and just get people inside. Yes, so, I was um, kind of waved through. Yes. Karen, how are you doing? <laughs> you, you were also stuck in that queue, I believe. I was, but I was happy to be there. And uh, yeah, I'm doing well, thanks. It's, uh, it's good to join you this morning to... Uh, to talk about this important piece of work. And I'm not being flippant. I mean, it, it was a big event. It felt like a big event. This is quite a momentous um, happening. Ray has been asked to review children's services in Northern Ireland. It's been described by many, including Baswell, as a once-in-a-generational review. So what we're talking about has massive, will have massive uh, implications. So let's get into the, the, the content. We've got an awful lot to talk about, Ray. You published 290-odd pages exploring what needs to change in Northern Ireland. Um, but it's very important, I think, from the outset to understand how Northern Ireland compares to elsewhere in the UK in terms of children's services. So, Carolyn, if you could briefly tell us how children's services are currently delivered in Northern Ireland. OK, so we have in Northern Ireland, we have one minister for health or we should have a minister for health in Northern Ireland. We don't have an executive or an assembly at this stage. So that's a slight problem. But we have a minister for health who delegates through the Office of Social Services and um, through the chief social worker, Um, and then out through to to trusts. We have five uh, integrated health and social care trusts in Northern Ireland, and that's quite unique. Um, It doesn't happen anywhere else across the UK. Um, I think that other parts of the UK are on a journey towards integration and and look at us with with great envy. I I think there's there's maybe uh, lessons we could could share with them about how we've experienced integration, but um, but that's how we deliver. We also then, um, we have a commissioning body um, called the SPPG um, uh, that sits in the department recently. No acronyms, Carolyn. Um, what does the SPPG stand for? Oh, now you're going to ask me, Andy. I don't uh, know what SPPG I can, stands I, for. I can help with this one. It stands well, for... Well, that's brilliant, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been learning in Northern Ireland. Strategic, <laughs> strategic Camp Planning and Performance Group. Just right. Top marks. Sorry, Karen. Sorry, sorry to do that. It's 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 been a perennial thing. Every time SPPG gets mentioned, everyone's like, "What's the second P stand for? Policy yeah. performance?" Yes. Um. But just for the avoidance of all doubt, um, for listeners outside of Northern Ireland, local authorities in Northern Ireland don't have any responsibility for the delivery of social work services. Absolutely. Yeah. All of our um, social services are delivered through um, children's services departments, headed up by a director of social work. Um, in the, the five trusts. We also commission some services through the voluntary community sector, really important sector that Ray mentions and talks a lot about in his report, and I'm sure we'll talk about later today. Yes, often overlooked and incredibly vital. Yeah. Um, so thank you, Carolyn. Um, you've explained that essentially the review is happening from a unique point, from a, from a UK perspective in terms of how services are delivered in Northern Ireland. Um, but what you're proposing, Ray, is also unique. Um, you're proposing the transfer of children's services to a region-wide social work-led arm's-length body of the Department of Health. You know, you build a really detailed case for why that change is needed. And over the next 45 minutes or so, we'll examine those issues. But I, I want to start with an exploration of why you've steered clear of proposing tweaks to the existing system. You know, you've you've recommended whole-scale reform. Why is that needed? 
because, Andy, what we've got in Northern Ireland at the moment uh, are services that are struggling, uh, staff who are going under, children and families who aren't getting the help that they need in a timely way uh, and uh, in the way that they need it. Uh, and those issues are systemic. They're about how the system is organised and they're endemic. They're now well ingrained in the system. They're not something that's just popped up as a consequence of COVID or whatever. They've been with us for a long time. Just going back to this bit about, um, as Karen was saying just now, about how services are organised. This goes back 50 years to 1973. 50, 50, 50 years. 50 yeah. years, 1973. Uh, and the reason that councils don't um, provide education or uh, housing or social services for children and adults in Northern Ireland is because the concerns way back in the early 1970s about sectarianism uh, and that um, not everybody in the communities was getting a fair crack of the whip in terms of public services. So um, those services were taken away from local government and placed within um, uh, regional government, uh, Northern Ireland's government. But one of the consequences of that is that we built a house uh, 50 years ago, and we're really proud of that house, and that house has been uh, applauded by uh, people elsewhere in terms of integrated health and social care. But actually, we didn't quite build the house we thought we would build. And uh, within uh, integrated health and social care services, social care, I have to say, is somewhat on the margins. And this is not a consequence of anybody's intentions. There are really good people out there leading health and social care trusts. But they've got really big agendas around hospitals and healthcare generally. And it's hard to get the space on the agenda and the attention that's required for children's social care. We can talk a bit about adult social care if you want as well, but children's social care. Uh, so my view is that we actually need to create an um, organisation across what is a big area, but Northern Ireland is not that big, 1.9 million population. You can get to most places just about everywhere in Northern Ireland within 120 minutes. Uh, from Belfast probably in about 90 minutes to most places. Uh, so it's not that big. It um, doesn't stop us having one organisation across Northern Ireland because of distance or time, but one organisation will allow us to have the focus and the grip on what needs to be tackled, which we don't have at the moment. Not that big, small but mighty, some would say, right? Um, in, terms of, in terms of transitioning to a social work-led arm's-length body, what will that mean for social workers? That's what I want to know, because I don't think that's what's been covered in the media. There's been an awful lot of focus in terms of unallocated cases. We'll talk about that. Demand on services. We'll talk about that. But for social workers listening to this podcast who want to know what's that going to mean for them in terms of how they work, how they are supported, um, the, the levels of service that they are able to provide, what's going to change for social workers, Ray? Well, they will be in an organisation which is social work led. And children's social care is not only about social work. I talk in the report about the skills mix. Uh, I suggest that um, within this one body for Northern Ireland, we should bring in colleagues who at the moment are in the Department of Justice, like um, youth justice workers, many of whom are social workers, but a lot of whom are youth workers. I talk about education welfare officers, who at the moment are largely social workers in Northern Ireland, but within the education department. But within one children's social care agency for Northern Ireland, and within Northern Ireland, that's called the arm's length body, arm's length from government, uh, you would have an organisation which is social work-led, with a wider skills mix uh, and where there is that focus on what is happening at the front line and at, in the communities for children and families, which is hard to get at the moment. So it's a real opportunity here. And this is not a challenge or a threat to professional social workers. It's an opportunity for professional social workers to actually have a key role within a multidisciplinary uh, organisation working with children and families within communities. And this might sound like a boring question, but this matters in terms of practicalities, day-to-day -day stuff, like literally where social workers go to the office, you know, the things that will affect people's routine and things like that. What will change? Will staff essentially be in the same premises, but under a different banner in terms of the organisation they work for? They might be. Uh, and um, one of the views I take is that this is for um, people working in Northern Ireland and leading services in Northern Ireland to grab this opportunity to shape it in the way that they need to shape it. So I would hope that in conversation with um, children, young people and families, with people working alongside um, children's social care services and health, uh, within policing, etc., within schools and education, that there could be a conversation about how best to actually do this on the ground, but also to do it on the ground in a way which does two things. 
One is it's sensitive to the needs of different communities in Northern Ireland, rural compared to urban, for example, but also gets a greater consistency in terms of some of the key issues at the moment very greatly across the different um, five trusts in Northern Ireland. So an opportunity to have both consistency, but also flexibility. What's it going to mean for people who use services? So Josephine has been throughout the, the process informing um, as, as an expert by experience. But Ray, how do you, how do you see um, services being changed, improved um, for the people who use them? Well, I think we've been going down a road uh, and I think it's time to actually just um, check the map that we uh, have been using and going down that road. Because the road that we've been going down, it's not just a Northern Ireland issue, but it's across the UK, it's down in the South and the Republic as well, uh, is a road which has taken us to a much greater focus on protection and care rather than family support. Uh, And in the review report, I talk about this. I've been talking in Northern Ireland with colleagues about this, uh, children and families, uh, people working within children's social care, people working with children's social care for the last 16 months. We have got to a system now where we are um, increasing our child protection activity. We have record numbers of children in care. But when I talk to children and families and to young people, they tell me that they're not getting the help they need it when they need it. So um, one of the things I'm hoping that will change in Northern Ireland is the balance of how we spend our time as social workers and others. And that is more support and help for families uh, and um, still protecting children and caring for them when necessary. But changing how we spend our time so we're out there with children and families more than we are at the moment. Thank you, Ray. And Josephine, does that chime with your experience in terms of being able to access services and support that you need? You know, how have you felt about the, the involvement in the process? It's been an absolute privilege to be involved in this whole process and this review process. Um, for someone that's come from a care-experienced view, it's definitely a privilege to get my voice out there and to maybe represent voices that aren't being heard in Northern Ireland. Um, it definitely allows that community to be seen and be heard and take the next step and getting the support that they need. And I, and I don't want to put words in your mouth at all. You, you described it as a privilege. I'm guessing Ray would see that as an absolute necessity. You know, it's vital that people who've been using services have their voices heard. And I'm guessing the way things have been done in the past where there has been that exclusion and people haven't been involved in the process have made Ray's very inclusive approach seem like a very privileged one when it should be, I'm guessing, the way services should be designed in general. Has this been 100%. unique, Josephine? Yeah. 100%. The support that we get on a day-to-day basis should have already been in place. It is a human right to be able to access these supports. It's a human right to be able to get the support you need to get out of areas or circumstances that you may not want to be in but we weren't getting that support and Ray so kindly came and gave that community an opportunity to get the support that we require. And I really want to delve into that in a little bit more detail shortly but before we do just while we're still talking about structures I mean there have been I'm aware Ray and Carolyn that there've been concerns raised throughout the process about a move away from integrated health and social care services but Ray you've cast some doubt about how integrated our system actually is are we trying in effect to defend something that's something of a mirage We're trying to defend something that was built 50 years ago that hasn't quite delivered what it said on the tin uh, and uh, what we need to do is open that tin up, have a really honest look at what's inside, and then think, as we need to, actually, we can do this better than we're doing at the moment. Lots of good stuff out there. Hey, I see some really good integrated services on the ground uh, for disabled children and their families, for example. Some really good stuff within youth justice on the ground. Some really good stuff through the community and voluntary sector within short start programs, youth centres and community groups. It's good stuff, but it's patchy. It's not region-wide, and to be honest, it's not quite as prevalent as I might have expected it to be, and not as um, uh, prevalent as I found in some other places. So I think we can do better on this in Northern Ireland. So my pitch is we can actually do more in terms of integration by having greater focus on what are the needs of children and families within communities. And with in a new current agency, a a children's social care agency, uh, having the leaders having that strategic role of working with others to do what's necessary on the ground in terms of integrated multi-professional service, which are actually engaging with children and families in a real way, meeting their needs, taking the advice from them about how best to do that. And I think I, I would support that, Ray. I mean, I think 
we, we've heard um, over the process of this review, and I suppose a bit before as well, that, you know, social work, I think, tends to operate in silos, strangely, even though we have an integrated system. And I think a lot of children's services um, staff are in one silo and other social workers um, are, are maybe more integrated in terms of the way they work. So multidisciplinary teams, community mental health teams, integrated care partnerships around older people, they are quite integrated and they need to be integrated with those health services. And I think children's services have always sat slightly aside from that. Um, and it was interesting work that we did, um, and uh, you'll remember this, um, with the Irish Association, looking at the identity and, and social workers' sense of identity and belonging. There, there was a kind of a separation and people felt more closely aligned to, to people in their teams um, who were from a different professional group, but they felt identified by where they worked. So I think that uh, there is an opportunity for us to, to really look and review what what integration in Northern Ireland means. And I think we've been on a bit of a journey um, over the last uh, the last year, Ray, in terms of discussions we've had with members. Um, and I think lots of people have been on, on that journey as, you know, I'm thinking a bit more, Darwin spoke on, on Wednesday and she described the journey that they've been on as directors of, of social work, that they kind of haven't necessarily been early adopters of the approach that you set out, but I think have very much come fully supportive at this stage. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I I do think that there's there's room for us to to have that uh, more nuanced conversation with our members. Carolyn, I think that's a, I think that's a really good point, Carolyn, because and we've all been on a journey over the last sixteen months. And I did not arrive in Northern I honestly did not arrive in Northern Ireland thinking that um, quite significant organisational change was the direction to go in. And there's always a cost to that in terms of time and attention uh, and uh, disruption. But increasingly came to the conclusion from what I was hearing from children, families, uh, from uh, practitioners, from managers, that um, yeah, we need a step change. And other people have now, if you like, come, come along and uh, we're willing to take that step together, I hope. Ray, you've also recommended the appointment of a Minister for Children and Families. Now, that would be a big step. Now, given you've proposed moving children's services to an arm's length body of the Department of Health, the new ministerial post would have to be within that department, I'm guessing. But would you see it as being a role of joint responsibility alongside health, or would it be a junior ministerial post under the health minister? I see it's a junior ministerial post, whether you have it in health or the executive office or wherever, I would not understand uh, the arrangements in the Northern Ireland Civil Service and Governance well enough to take a clear view on that for myself. Uh, but what I'm looking for is some political leadership. And uh, when I say political leadership, and we have had a really good health minister in Northern Ireland uh, prior to the Assembly and the Executive being stood down, Robin Swan commissioned this review, uh, has been a great um, support for me and an ally throughout this review, has himself been on the journey and has signed up to a region-wide children's social care agency, uh, and I really am appreciative of that. But um, what we have in Northern Ireland is a cooperation act in relation to children's services, but no one taking the responsibility politically to make it happen across the agency boundaries and departmental boundaries within government. So my view about a children's minister is it's not of the same type, level, status as the uh, departmental ministers, Minister for Education, Minister for Health, whatever. Uh, so it would be a more junior level. How best to locate it? I wouldn't have the um, wisdom to uh, give a view on that. But what I want is somebody who's a politician, who is a champion for what's happening for children and families, who doesn't um, just worry about it every day, but is out there being active about it every day. I like them to be close to the children's commissioner as an independent person uh, with a similar re remit, but outside of government. So that's what I'm looking for. It's a really interesting proposal, Carolyn, because, I mean, Northern Ireland government, which isn't currently working, um, is a unique thing in the UK. We have a mandatory power-sharing government. We have this kind of ridiculous situation where the Department of Health has about half of the executive's budget. It's often not chosen by a party. It's often left as, like, the last option in our in our allocation system, which is the DeHunt system, which I won't get into. It's interesting to me. It's probably not interesting to anybody else. But Robin Swan, as the Ulster Unionist Health Minister, that was the first time in a number of governments where health had actually been actively chosen when there was another option left because um, that party wanted to take on the mantle, you know, as opposed to just having health dropped on them. Having a second ministerial post could potentially make 
the Department of Health a much more attractive portfolio to take on for, for a party. So it is a really interesting proposal, Ray, um, and not one that I, I think we were expecting in terms of the, the report, so it was interesting to see. Um, just coming back a little bit to the current situation, Senior managers in social work in Northern Ireland, they're pulled in many different directions. Uh, and I'm aware of some of the executive directors um, of social work. They have incredibly wide remits. Carolyn, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, um, the diversity in those roles and how that may be preventing having the focus on social work, which Ray is, is hoping to achieve through his proposals? So we at the moment, we have um, five um, executive directors of social work across the five integrated health and social care trusts. Um, those people have a dual role in a sense. So they're an executive director for social work, but they're also mandated by law to be the um, director for children's services. Um, and our legislation in Northern Ireland is different and that we must have a social worker occupying those posts. So the dual role that the directors hold at the minute, I, I, I think is a real challenge. And I, I know that they have uh, just an extremely large portfolio, each of them. Um, so they have responsibility not only for all of social work services in Northern Ireland, uh, but also uh, for hospitals, some of those people also hold directors uh, directorship for maternity services, for health nursing, for school nursing, for all of those kind of um, different strands report into them. Um, and they, they also have the executive um, role of, of social work. So there's a really complicated, very large uh, job that they have to take on, which means that, I mean, I, I think, Ray, you mentioned it in the report and you mentioned it certainly on Wednesday, that something like, you know, 70% of their time is taken up with other jobs that are not children's services. So 70% of the demands in their time are to do with hospitals, waiting lists, um, hospital emergency ED departments. And actually the time that they have to spend focusing on children's services is, is really, really small. And I think that challenge is very well set out by Ray in the report. And I think that your rationale, Ray, it's very hard to argue against that we need to have uh, those people removed from all of that um, executive director role um, and all of those other wider distractions uh, for them that take them away from children's services. I'm just I'm really keen to know from Josephine's perspective, Josephine is a student social worker, you know, as somebody who's soon going to be entering the profession. Does that surprise you, Josephine, that senior leaders in social work are so, I suppose, um, now, I don't want this to reflect badly. The directors of social work in Northern Ireland are fantastic individuals, but just in terms of how diffuse their posts are and how many directions they're pulled in, does that surprise you? It doesn't surprise me at first because that's what we are taught in university every day. Do you know what I mean? We've been learning it for two and a half years. But it it can come to a shock that actually we spend so much money and so much time studying for this really professional um, post and we learn all these important skills and values and knowledge to then be possibly going out into a practice that I don't get to train or practice what I've been learned. And I think that's not necessarily scary, but it's kind of worrying that you may be spending so much time learning these really valuable things and not getting to experience them when you leave university. And as it's been mentioned throughout this whole week, I think having extra uh, posts for like the likes of contact work, administrative roles, um, family support work, youth justice support workers that come in and help social workers do the vital role they're supposed to do. And having all them extra posts would be really beneficial to allow the social worker to do what they've spent three years at uni, placements, money and time and values and knowledge to be able to carry that out in <laughs> society and for the service users that require it. And what, what, what area of um, service provision would you like to get into, Josephine? Uh, personally, I have a couple. I really enjoyed mental health. Um, oh. I haven't had the opportunity to experience children in university yet, but mental health definitely set a good bar. It set a really good expectation and it was brilliant to work in that sector. But as everyone knows from my personal experience, I definitely think I'd have a good insight and I know myself, I have good empathy to work with the family and childcare sector. Now tell me, you, you, so based on your experience, you were involved in the review. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but there were three sta strands to, to the approach that Ray took. Now the first of which, I think this is very, vitally important, was focusing on the experiences of children, young people and their families who use social work services. So Josephine, tell us a bit about, tell us a bit about Voipic, the charity that you've been working with and how that has uh, fed into the review. Yeah, um, Voipic have been absolutely amazing. As I said, without Voipic, I wouldn't have got these opportunities to 
sit with such a well-known man to be involved with Basva to get these opportunities. So for such a small but wisdomatic organisation, they've definitely allowed me and all the young people of that EBA, the Expert by Experience group, to get their voices heard and to be part of such a big, hopefully historic change in Northern Ireland. Um, and as Ray says in his report, there are wise and wonderful staff in there that don't get the recognition that they deserve every day. Um, but it was, yeah, Voipec that allowed our voices to be heard and to create this group to be part of this massive review. Andy, it's been, it's been really special. It's been really special, special for me. Because uh, <laughs> I've seen young people who have got ins- considerable expertise and wisdom. They know what's going on, but they've also got the confidence and the competence to talk about it and to tell and to shape and to give advice. And the third thing about this is I've seen them looking out for each other and looking after each other. They are impressive people. They're caring people. They are together people. They've had terrible times sometimes, not experiences that I'd like to have had, but they've shown tremendous resilience. And uh, it's been a real privilege of having had that time. And I have to say, also with some parents that I've been meeting with, and uh, similarly, so we can get uh, a really strong picture of what we need to be doing just by listening. And uh, Josephine has been a real star in helping to shape that conversation. She's going to be a great social worker. And whether she goes into mental health, children and families or whatever, indeed, one of the things in Northern Ireland in terms of that initial qualification, keep it generic so that people can actually move around within their career. I thought I was going to be a psychiatric social worker, then found out myself as the only young male in the office, so suddenly became the social worker with adolescent boys. And then I went down uh, in a generic team, but much more into the um, uh, children and families work. Some of that happened accidentally, just by where you were at the time. Uh, So um, keep the options open and whatever it's going to be, Josephine's going to be good at it. Absolutely. And just just talking about Voipec, I just want to kind of put on record, I don't know if I have to, but um, I was a board member of Voipec for four years, ending in December 2022. So I know the organisation is a fantastic organisation, but just want people listening to know that, um, that that is an interest I have. um, And I don't want that to be in any way hidden. I I think it's really important, Ray, that we recognise the partnership approach that you've taken to, to this review. It has never felt, I think, as Josephine has said, it has never felt like we're being done onto. You've gone out and you have genuinely engaged across the whole of social work and social care in Northern mm-hmm. Ireland. I mean, it's hard to find someone who you haven't met and haven't spoken with. And I think one of the things that, that people always commented was, and they commented on it on Wednesday, was your capacity to listen uh, and to actively listen, to take stuff on board and to give a voice to that. So I, I just want to say it has felt like a very... Um, a very involved process. And I think actually, my sense is that you you brought people, we've talked about it before, on a journey. You you brought people to the top of the hill. And I think lots of people have figured out how how they're going to position themselves as organisations and uh, support it. And it would be really, really, I think, remiss of us to to let this opportunity go. Well, I'll tell you, Caroline, I've had the privilege, I've had the time to do this in one sense. And I've been able to meet not just with a lot of social workers. And yeah. in the report, I say possibly over 800, but I've not been, been counting, but it seems a lot. And uh, at the conference that we had um, to launch the review report, I was asking how many people in the audience, in the, in the, in the audience, in the room, 400 odd people. Uh, you did put on a bit with, of a show, Ray. Ray. I mean, uh, <laughs> you talk about the audience, there was a bit of a show. Sorry. <laughs> how many people thought, uh, or not thought, knew that, um, knew, had had that contact with me through the review. And most of the hands went up. And I was really pleased about that. But something else within that room, there weren't just social workers. And there were a lot of social workers. And um, I'm a social worker, that's my identity. But there were people working in the education department, in schools, in policing, uh, allied health professionals, medics, etc. Judges uh, from the judiciary, uh, really senior people uh, in terms of Northern Ireland. Very important people in the civil service, uh, politicians. And I've had that opportunity and that time to engage across all of those sectors, children and families, young people, parents. And that's what I want the Director of Children's Services to be able to do. Uh, And at the moment, they're not. And the conversation just now, they're only spending about 30% of their time 
within the, the, the phrase that I've used, looking down and out, a terrible phrase in one sense, but down into their organisation at the front line and out into their communities because they're spending 70% of their time looking up and in, up to the Department of Health. And we need to um, reset the um, uh, relationship with the Department of Health so that um, the Director of Children's Services are empowered to do what they need to do with the time to do it. Uh, and also looking into their organisations, as Caroline was saying, spending a lot of time on corporate issues around um, the big pressures within health. It's bound to be so in the Health and Social Care Trust that that's where the attention goes. So I want the Director of Children's Services to be given the time, the opportunity to do what I've been able to do, which is to dig it out and about, build those relationships, find out what's happening, and then in conversation with others, including children and families and parents and uh, young people, and with colleagues working on the front line as practitioners, decide what we're going to do. So that's the um, that's the challenge. This is the opportunity. That's what we've got to go for. So let's look at the situation on the ground then, Ray. Um, you led in your presentation on Wednesday, and I know it was in the press release, which went out as well, with the report that there are currently 4,000 unallocated cases in children's services in Northern Ireland. You know, we, we kind of, we've talked about how we've ended up in that scenario in terms of the way things have been structured. But how does that picture compare to the rest of the UK? Yeah, it's not 4,000 cases, Andy. It's probably over 4,000 children. Uh, my reason for saying that, if you look at the number of cases, uh, if I remember rightly, uh, in February, it's 1,895 1, cases uh, that were unallocated uh, or waiting for assessment. Uh, but bearing in mind, some of those families will have two or three children. That's where the 4,000 comes gotcha. from. How does that compare with the, the rest of the UK? Uh, well, Northern Ireland's only got a population of 1.9 million. So 4,000 children wait, who cross the threshold, apparently, for needing um, uh, an involvement with children's social care, but not getting that attention and the involvement that it requires. Plus, I have to say, beyond those 4,000 children, other children who may have been allocated to a social worker or to someone else within children's social care services, but where, the, where, where our colleagues, are, the staff within those services, are not able to give it the attention at the time it's required. So for a population of 1.9 million, that's a pretty big incidence in terms of um, work that we're not able to do. Uh, and I make the comment uh, in the report, I think, I've certainly made the comment elsewhere, if um, Ofsted were coming in and looking at this, uh, uh, they would probably be saying, hey, we're not doing the job we need to be doing. Uh, we're not adequate. So um, that's where I'm at in terms of what it's like in Northern Ireland at the moment. Thanks, right. And Carolyn, we have the highest number of children in care on record since the children order came into since force. The children order, yeah. Over 3,800. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, year on year, we, we've seen that uh, begin to creep up. Um, and, you know, we, we simply know that social workers um, are, aren't able to to cope with the, the demands that, that are being placed on them. Um, you know, we have a recruitment crisis in uh, children's services at this stage. We have something like, um, we know the average recruitment rate is just over 10%. But the, that in vacancy, children's vacancy services, rate, Carolyn, you mean? Vacancy rate. Sorry, the vacancy rate. Yeah, sorry, Andy, thanks for that. Um, but we know the vacancy rate um, sitting within some aspects of children's services at 50%, 50%. I mean, that it's just, um, it's untenable, really, that, you know, our, our system, I think, is 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 at the point of crisis. And we desperately need to do something to try and make a make a change to that. And that can really lead to inconsistency in care. We don't have, we have that turnover in staff inability to form the relationships with service users. I'm just thinking about your, your experiences, um, Josephine. Have you had, have you felt a lack of consistency in, in any, at any point in terms of social work involvement? Yeah, absolutely. And I think most children in care will have had experience of multiple social workers throughout their lives. Um, we already know the system puts you through different teams, which again yeah. has to give you different social workers. So that's you don't even get an option at that at the start. You go through gateway, you have a social worker, you go through family intervention, you get a different social worker, you go through lack, then you get a different one. And as you grow older, again, you get a different one at different ages and stages. So in each team, to have to go through one team and have multiple social workers in one team, that sets out a standard that you're already having to re relay your story over and over again. And how, how does that make you feel when that happens? What does that feel like? Just feel, is it is it if something's traumatic, you're reliving that over and over again when you tell the story, yeah? It can be scary. It can feel slightly belittling because it can take a lot of confidence and a lot of self-esteem to have to tell that story in the first yeah. place. And to then have to tell it over and over again, you sometimes can feel like you're maybe not being listened to. Yeah. Because 
you've told your story to a team and that team could very well have that story on record that then that social worker could come out and know your story without you having to go into every little detail. But I know for myself, I've had about 10 social workers and I'm only 22. So for me, having multiple social workers, you you can self-reflect and you can self-reflect on what gives them the skills to build positive relationships with me as a service user and what necessarily isn't the pro- appropriate skills to help build a positive relationship. That That's the one thing that people get into social work for, to build relationships. They want to work with people. They want to connect with people. 100%. That's what, we, that's what we're all about, isn't it? Connections, human relationships. And it's absolutely fundamentally important that social work services are resourced so that they, people are able to spend time doing the job, as you so eloquently said earlier, Josephine, doing the job that they were trained to do. Not filling out forms, uh, as we've been saying for many, many years, and I know you pick up on it in the report as well, Ray, children's services and, and other parts of, of, of social work as well have become overly bureaucratized um, and unnecessary duplicative uh, processes that really we need to we need to re- reduce remove those from social work yeah and just picking up on what Josephine, Josephine was saying and what Carolyn was saying there um, really powerful stuff Josephine thank you for that oh god it does hit home doesn't it in terms of all that change of social workers it's not good for social workers. It's not good for children, and young families, uh, children and families, and young people. One of the things I think that we need to um, really reflect hard on, in terms of what Josephine was saying just now, is how we actually create the organisational context where there's going to be change of worker uh, between teams. Because as someone goes through the journey of being in contact with children and social care, we move them from team to team. So one of the um, uh, reflections and recommendations in the review report is let's see if we can move back towards community social work and community teams uh, embedded within their local areas, working with their colleagues and uh, other services, with a good skills mix within those teams as well, but where you don't have that enforced change of social worker because you go from within Northern Ireland, the jargon is gateway to family intervention, to looked after children, to leaving care, etc. Second bit about it is Northern Ireland has taken a decision to um, not continue with the employment of agency social workers within uh, statutory children's social care services. I think that is really important. I think that's really powerful. Uh, I track the um, conversation that goes on in England and elsewhere about um, agency social workers and agency social workers coming out and um, really arguing strongly for their position and the contribution they make. You cannot make a good contribution in the way that we need to as social workers unless you're staying beside people over a period of time. Getting to know them, having their trust, building that relationship and commitment with each other. You cannot do the job if you're here today and gone tomorrow and churning and changing. And the third bit that I'd like to um, quickly make um, comment about is because I'm talking about um, uh, children and families, social work and children and families, social care. And as I say, social care is wider than social work, but social work will be the lead profession within it. I'm thinking about my colleagues working in adult services as well. Because one of the things I'm aware of in terms of the Health and Social Care Trust is that uh, if we move, and I think we should, children's social care into a region-wide body, our colleagues who are working in mental health and drug and alcohol services, learning disability services, service for older people, people with physical impairments, sensory loss, etc., may be feeling they're going to be a bit stranded. Actually, there's an opportunity here. There's an opportunity here to do two things. One is to up the profile of social work, because for adult social work as well as children's social work, we probably don't get the recognition in the space that we should be getting. Integrated care systems in England and the uh, Basel recent re- response and review of that found that um, adult social care and adult social workers really aren't getting much of a profile within integrated care systems. So overall, if we can improve up the profile of social work, I think that will be a benefit to adult social workers as well as children and family social workers. And then in relation to building more integrated services, there's an opportunity there to bridge that gap between children's social work and adult social work that's sometimes too wide at the moment. So I think there's an opportunity here from what's being proposed uh, to actually benefit adult social workers, but social workers working with adults, um, as well as social workers who are working in what's defined as children and family services. I can see why it's seen possibly as um, leaving them behind or isolated. Um, I think there's an opportunity to um, up the profile for social workers generally through this. Ray, one of the things you touched on in your report, um, which is unique to Northern Ireland, when you talk about the toxic trio, which many listeners will be familiar with in terms of um, 
poor mental health, problematic drugs and alcohol use and domestic abuse and the interrelation of those um, three factors. But you've also suggested for Northern Ireland a sort of second toxic trio. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because I want listeners who are outside of the region to understand why this is quite unique. Well, just getting back to and what we talk about generally as a toxic trio, uh, mental health issues, drug and alcohol abuse, domestic violence, and those in their own right are related to deprivation. And if you're if you're going under as a consequence of really severe poverty, deprivation, becoming destitution, if you're a, a mum, uh, getting up in the morning, working out how to get through the day, feeling really bad that you're not able to care for the children and give them what they need in terms of basics, if you're a, a man and you feel that and you're just letting everybody down, including within your family, uh, as you're overwhelmed by poverty as well. It does actually promote more issues in relation to mental health, anxiety, depression. Sometimes it promotes an, um, uh, anger, uh, which might be directed inwards in terms of suicide and self-harm, or anger in terms of violence and aggression to others. So that toxic trio is heavily linked with deprivation and poverty, and Northern Ireland has more, than, more of its share than that. But then in Northern Ireland, as you were saying, Andy, there's also this additional toxic trio. And the toxic trio is the legacy of the troubles, the trauma that's been created as a consequence of living through the troubles and the fear in Northern Ireland of violence within communities, domination by um, particular uh, groupings and people within communities, the trauma that's created in terms of the higher incidence of mental health. Uh, and that transgenerational trauma, because some of that is then passed on to future generations in terms of the care that they're getting. But that, in one sense, is there. That's history. We have to work, work and live with that now. But there's something else going on. There's trauma being created today. In some of our communities in Northern Ireland, again, sometimes linked with areas of deprivation, there are powerful people who are intimidating and threatening within the communities. And this is coming out in your it, research? It, this is something you're well, hearing from... Yeah, I'll tell you about it in a minute because I'm, and it surprises me, they're still called paramilitaries because they're not, they're organised criminals. This is not about, if you like, a political agenda, this is about power, coercion and control and threat and fear within communities by criminals, not paramilitaries. There's no political agenda here with this. This is about individuals intimidating within their communities. And are you seeing this across society or is it is it unique to, or is it disproportionately in, in one side of the community across what is the historic political divide? Well, and uh, uh, other people will have greater knowledge and wisdom than this I do. I'm a kind of both a newcomer in Northern Ireland, but a naive person in relation to Northern Ireland. I'm learning as I go along. But what is reported is about 15 to 30% of the population are living in communities where this is within their daily experience and lives. So it's not within every community, but it is endemic across Northern Ireland, so even if you don't live in those communities, you know it's going on. It's a part of your you know, your background and your life experience. How does it show up in terms of children's social care? Well, uh, it shows up in terms of more demand and more uh, need being generated as a consequence of people being uh, really fearful, frightened, depressed, anxious. For young people, they get drawn into the drugs trade, for example. There are young people in our children's homes and in secure accommodation and in remanded into custody uh, who are there because they needed to be in our children's homes or secure accommodation. But when they are there, sometimes they don't want to get out. They don't want to go back because they're under fear and threat from um, uh, violent criminals. It uh, shows up in terms of in some communities um, that I've been in, family centres being uh, warned by people, uh, these powerful criminals, that they should not have um, newcomers, asylum seekers, coming to their family centre to use their services. Um, or that they shouldn't have the police coming into schools because we don't want the police in our in our community. Thank you very much. Don't have the police coming into our schools talking about community safety, etc. And uh, in at least one area, maybe more, but in one area, I met a person who's employed as a social worker, whose job is to negotiate access for social workers into that community with powerful people who are criminals. So and that's something uh, of the past, Carolyn. That harkens back to something we've spoken about before in the podcast. It does, absolutely. You know, it was routine that we had to contact an organisation called Base 2. And that was that, you know, they could confirm whether there was a paramilitary threat. We were able to check out whether it was safe to go into into areas. We knew, for example, that, you know, when I remember one of my first jobs ever on the uh, Antrim Road in Belfast, and we got the phone call to the office to say, okay, you can start to make your visits now. 
your number plate's been noted and we know that you're from the welfare, so you'll be safe. The welfare. Money lending as well, right? Um, well, money ma- lending. Yeah, ma- money lending. There's a BBC Northern Ireland documentary about it. I saw when I was spending one of my nights in a hotel in Northern Ireland watching that, uh, where people going to food banks, for example. This is horrific. Watched. This is absolutely horrific. If people are going to food banks, uh, uh, some of these par- uh, paramilitaries, the criminals are observing who goes to the food bank they then go around and knock on their door and say, hey, look, we know you're having a bit of trouble with money. We can lend you some money. They lend them the money and then they have control over them in terms of fear and threat about if you don't pay this money back at the interest rate we're determining, then uh, we're coming around. There are phrases in Northern Ireland that um, I totally misinterpreted when I turned up, first of all. And uh, this might sound a bit funny, but it's not a joke. When I came to Northern Ireland, people kept telling me about having the windows put in. I thought there was a heck of a trade going on and people having new windows put in in Northern Ireland, you know, a real big industry. Uh, and I only worked out after well, maybe a few, a few weeks, having a new window put in wasn't about having new windows. It was having new windows smashed in. I met with a housing executive in Northern Ireland. I was told about families having to move at very short notice on the advice of the police because threats were being made about them. When I say very short notice, within hours, from their communities and the housing executive having to find accommodation for them. This is not what I'm used to. I'm used to some of the areas where I've worked in the past 50 years, where there's been um, uh, some organised crime, or there's been powerful people who have been bullies within their communities. But it's not of the same nature that I'm seeing in Northern Ireland, where it is more rampant, more significant and more intense. And I think part of the issue there, Ray, is, I mean, we we did research a few years ago. We published it um, and we, we called it um, uh, Boswell, voice of uh, sorry, voices of social workers through the troubles. I completely had a mind blank. There I'll put a link in the show notes, Carolyn. Yeah, I mean, a really powerful research where we actually asked social workers about their experience of working uh, throughout the troubles, and I mean, all of those examples, Ray, were you know were, were illustrated in that. But yes, they're they're still very real. We live in a very sectarian and divided society. Um, and, and those experiences are still something that, that we experience every day. I think actually, I, I think the problem is that, you know, one of the ways of coping in Northern Ireland with the Troubles, I mean, the fact that we call it the Troubles, this cute, you know, kind of name to it. I mean, it was a horrific period of, of civil war, um, you know, but the fact that we we lived through it, we experienced it, we worked and we just got on. It was a phrase we heard time and time again. You just got on and did and I think the fact that we just got on and did and we survived as a society, however damaged we've come out of that process, that we just simply get on and keep doing what we're doing um, and don't actually address those issues. So those big issues, Ray, that you've highlighted and kind of go, this is really bizarre. As a society, it is so bizarre. It is so weird that we live in this way, but we all just accept it and, and we don't really question it. And I think, you know, Whenever, when someone like you shines a light on it, we kind of go, yeah, that is so bizarre. How do we manage to live like that? Um, and maybe the reality is that it's too difficult to try and um, to try and deal with. You know, we had celebration there recently of 25 years of the Good Friday Agreement. And we, we've had peace. Peace has been brought to Northern Ireland, which is hugely um, welcome and it's wonderful. But we have yet to resolve any of the legacy, I think, of the Troubles. Yeah, and I'm really keen to hear from Josephine as someone who was born after the signing of the Good Friday Agreement yeah. the only person in this conversation who was uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what's your experience like does this does this chime with your reality um, Josephine or are you very aware of everything that's been discussed is, it, is this basically as much a reality for you as it is for everybody else 100% yeah I can't honestly reflect on personal experiences because as you said I have not lived through it but being in this generation, you definitely grow up in a society where it's spoke about in every area, every corner. You're taught about it in school. You're taught about it with your family. Um, you may have the unfortunate circumstance of being having one of your family members go through it. And that's what Ray says about your generational trauma. So you maybe have, been, have it passed down in the family. Um, there's also living up to expectations in families, especially I find in my generation that you have young people that maybe had their grandfather or their great-grandfather go through it and they want to live up to that legacy as well. Um, you grow up in this society and you're hearing about it on your school bus going into school. You're hearing about it on the news or even on your Facebook, your twi- Twitter, TikTok, whatever it is nowadays. You're always hearing about it. Um, and as you have mentioned throughout, 
the different the whole political divide in Northern Ireland, you do have to be aware of it. You're always subconsciously aware of it. I know for myself, I study at McGee campus, which is in London slash London or Derry, London Derry slash Terry. Um, and even that, you have to be aware of how you pronounce uh, towns, uh, what areas you can or can't go into. And you're always trying to think about your own identity or your own identity as well, because if you're a Catholic or you're a Protestant, you're always thinking about it. Doesn't matter what career you're in or what job you go into or what you do. Um, but yeah, it's definitely still around nowadays. As I've said, the what we know as paramilitary groups, what we know as people that create antisocial behaviours, um, some identify with protective factors in communities. And yeah, it's definitely still around and I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. I might have shared this before, but the thing which kind of really makes it kind of apparent to me, I always think I wasn't affected by the Troubles. I grew up just, uh, so I was born in 1983. Um, so I had a few years before the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, I remember seeing the news, people being killed every day. Thought I wasn't personally affected. I had a friend whose dad was murdered. He was in the RUC, in the, in the police force, and he was murdered. And you're like, how weird a situation where you think I wasn't affected by a new kid whose dad was killed. Do you know? So like, yeah, it really kind of brings it home. We could talk and talk and talk about this. It's very interesting, but we do have to move on. And one of the things, Ray, that you were very clear in um, is the need to move on to focus on family support and a move away from a focus on child protection. Now, Explain that a bit, because to me, that seems odd. I mean, is it not a case of balance between those two factors? Uh, explain your thinking there. Yeah, I don't want us to move away from child protection. <laughs> when children need protecting, hey, let's get out there and do it. All right. Uh, so uh, this is not let's uh, be woolly about child protection. It is how we actually do it to some extent. We have a um, higher rate of the child po- uh, population in Northern Ireland with child protection plans. We have um, higher... Um, uh, increasing record numbers now of children in care and in care primarily through um, court proceedings. They're not there in negotiation with families. Uh, it's a care which is determined by the court and imposed on families, children coming into care. So I don't want to move away from child protection. I don't want to move away from providing good care for children that, um, and young people who need it. What I do want to do, and I hear this from children and young people in care as well as others, including parents, is I want to actually have a uh, system, circumstances, where we can be beside families, providing them with the help that they need. And if that means sometimes providing help by caring for their children away from their families, doing that as well. Not losing the focus on um, what's happening for children when we're not there in terms of safety and in terms of quality of care that they're getting, but actually helping families more than we are at the moment to care well for their children in very difficult circumstances. And I see this happening to some extent through voluntary community services, now, family centres, for example, community groups out in the community, Sure Start. I see social workers and others within the Health and Social Care Trust and other um, statutory services trying to do it. But it's not what we're spending as much time on doing as I would like to see us doing. And I think we want to be doing and we need to be doing. So I want to change. I want to change the balance. I don't want to stop doing child protection or looking after children well in terms of care. We want to do all of those things really well. But we want to see that as a part of the job not essentially as dominating the job. The Children's Order in Northern Ireland, this is such a legislation that uh, we should all be working with. The Children's Order in Northern Ireland is very clear. The first task is to help families care well for their children, children in need. Second task is to protect children when that's necessary. Third task is to care for children away from their families when that's required. What we've become is focused on the second and third task, and the first one, helping families care well for their children, has dropped off the table. It's partly a resource issue, but it's partly how we've come to understand our job. I hear social workers talking in Northern Ireland about being child protection social workers. Hey, come on. We're children and family social workers who protect children when necessary and care for them when that's required. That's where we need to get back to. Prevention, Andy, was one of the, the cornerstones of the children order. Uh, I know when I started to practice, yeah. we learned the five Ps, and one of those was very clearly prevention. But you're right, Ray. I mean, we have, we have become an entirely... Uh, I mean, social workers tell us they don't have time, they don't have resource, and the, the demands on their time are so grave that actually it means that children are only getting through to them to get services at the point of needing protection. But I think, I think, Carolyn, if we, within that children's agency, children and families agency, what we have been talking about and I hope will happen, uh, and hearing what um, 
Jason was saying about not structuring ourselves with loads of handovers between different teams and different workers. If we can get out there into the communities more than we are at the moment, even with the scarce resources that we've got, and skilled professional social work is a scarce resource, making sure that we can use our core professional competences by having a wider skills mix around us as well, as Josephine was talking about earlier, I think we can actually turn this tanker around. I talk about turning the Titanic around, but turning this tanker around, I think we can do it differently. Right, is there a parallel with the Independent Review in England, the McAllister Review? They talked about um, uh, introduction of family help teams and uh, multidisciplinary teams. You're talking about skills mix. Is there a parallel there or is this a different sort of approach? Well, the intention is the same, but there is a difference. I would not be holding back our most skilled social workers to do child protection. Uh, social workers who are the more experienced, the, the, uh, probably the more confident social workers, uh, holding them back, and they only get brought into play when there's a child protection concern like that for two reasons. One is <laughs> helping families who are struggling is a skilled social work task in its own right, and we ought only not only to be making that available when there's a child protection issue that seems to be needing to be addressed. The second reason for it is. Far from turning the tanker, this will actually push the tanker further down the road. The only time you can get a real service with real focus from skilled social workers is if it's seen as a child protection concern. That's not the direction we should be travelling in. Yeah, and I'm glad I asked that because that's very helpful. I think when we made the previous episode in relation to the independent review in England, that was a question I had asked to others. Does this, in effect, sort of diminish the role of social work in terms of early intervention family support? Yeah. So thanks for, for, for clarifying that, Ray. Now, we need to wrap this up, but I'm coming back to a point you made earlier, Ray, in relation to the toxic trio. You haven't finished. The third part of the toxic trio was the political vacuum in Northern Ireland. We haven't had government in Northern Ireland since May 2022, Carolyn, isn't that about right? So, you know, no, I'll tell, this... tell, tell you exactly when it was. It was February 2022. It's the same month well, as review started. We, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's when, that's when the Assembly... Uh, stood down. And we had our silly period of caretaker government, though, Ray, for well, a number the of minister, months. Well, the ministers ended in October 2022 when they just stand down. But okay. and, um, it stopped functioning in February 2022, just as it I stopped, turned it stopped, stopped being scrutinised. Mm. And that's part of the issue. We had this with the caretaker government where you had a, an executive that functioned to ensure that departments were still being managed, but no assembly scrutinising that work. A bizarre situation. Without getting too technical and all that, we don't have government. We have no uh, no date in the future when we expect to have government. With that scenario, have you fears for, for the work you've produced? Could it be shelved? Could it be forgotten about? Well, I have an even bigger fear, Andy. Um, I actually think the work that we've produced together in terms of the review is really important, but something else is really important, which is what's happening for children and families now. There's a cost of living crisis, poverty is increasing, deprivation is increasing, public services are being decimated, Voluntary and community services are being cut as a consequence of having no political executive and no assembly that's actually voting on the budgets that need to be in place to actually um, provide those public services to help children and families. So that is my biggest concern. And there's a big pit being dug at the moment by no political action, by a political vacuum. Uh, And by the time the politicians get back doing the job they should be doing, uh, then uh, that pit is going to be really deep and it's going to take a long time to climb out of it. So it's a real issue at the moment that we are creating a situation which is really dire for children and families. It's decimating public services and it's going to take some time to reclaim the ground. So I hope some, there might be some politicians listening to this because, hey, get back quickly because it's going to be a really difficult job and you're making it harder for yourselves all the time. In terms of the review, yep, yeah, and... Uh, to colleagues across Northern Ireland, the ball's in your court now. I'm slightly off the pitch. Uh, I've done the report. You know, I'll still be as helpful as I can. Tell me what I can be doing to be helpful, uh, to make it happen. But you've got to take this on now. And you've got to take it on and keep the momentum going, keep the profile going, waiting for the politicians to come back in, because some of these are decisions that will have to be taken by politicians. Civil servants in Northern Ireland are being run ragged. They're being asked to take really difficult decisions uh, having to take real decisions about budgets, which they don't want to have to be taken, cutting services. So let's try and uh, not put the blame onto civil I've servants. Seen, I, have seen, I have seen criticism of civil servants, and I've challenged it, Ray, yeah, in, yeah, in no, conversations, and I think it's totally yeah. inappropriate. You I know, totally, civil totally servants agree. aren't there to make those... I think when Basil wrote to... to um, uh, Permanent Secretary's past, we described the invidious position they're being put in. This is not their job to be making these decisions. They're political decisions. 
they're an awful they're in an awful position. Uh, and one of the things I've said, I think, uh, very recently, is I would never choose to work in a civil service in Northern Ireland in the context in which they're having to work at the moment. They're being landed with responsibilities without the power to deal with it. Uh, and uh, the politicians need to get back on the job. And I think I made a conference, uh, a comment at the conference this week when we, or last week when we launched the report, uh, which was, I've never applied for a job myself, been appointed, then failed to turn up for work. Uh, and uh, we need to get people back at work. It was, it was well received. I think it was maybe the biggest clap of the day. It was, yeah. You know, straight. Yeah, it yeah. was. It was. You know, I'm supporting the audience. Josephine, Carolyn, Ray, thank you so much for your time. It's been incredibly generous. Um, it's been wonderful to have Josephine uh, and Ray on Let's Talk Social Work for the first time. Carolyn, it's been great to have you back. Thanks so much. I have to say, Andy, it's a bit Thanks like... for having me. Yeah, it's a bit like Treasure Island's dish. You have to say, no, it's been wonderful. I've appreciated yes. it. Thank you. What was okay. <laughs> so you mentioned Desert Island. This, what is your, what's your item, Ray? What are you bringing? What's your one luxury item? Oh, it's going to be a review report now because I don't want to let go of it. Oh, but you, is that not seared in your brain? Okay, good answer. <laughs> good answer. You get the complete works of Shakespeare and the Bible. There you go. Okay, thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.